Welcome everyone to Arthritis at Home. My name is Ellen and I'm the Programs Coordinator for Arthritis Consumer Experts. And today I'm joined by one of my favorites, Cheryl Cohen, who is the President of Arthritis Consumer Experts. Welcome, Cheryl. Thank you so much, Ellen. I'm happy to be with you again today. Cheryl, I'm excited to put you in the hot seat today as we have something you know, really profound to announce and to share with our community, which is, you know, we wanna give you a sneak peek of the publication um, of our survey on arthritis health inequities today. So Cheryl, you know, I wanna start off by asking you what inspired ACE to investigate this topic and what does health inequities have to do with arthritis care? Well, that's a great place to start our conversation, Ellen. Um, I wouldn't so much say use the word inspired as what was ACE required to do. It's a responsibility for us to take on this work because you can't just advocate for or collect the voices of what I consider the advantaged. So people who are relatively easily getting to healthcare a treatment and services that they need. So, so first, um, we need to know that health inequities, um, you know, it, this, this didn't just start in the last couple of years during the pandemic, right? Health inequities in general and health inequities specific to arthritis um, have, has, you know, been an important issue for 100 plus years, right? We know the people who um, are uh, living in a certain set of socioeconomic circumstances face inequities. We've known that for a long, long time, but the problem is we haven't necessarily known it by collecting voices from the grassroots, from uh, sort of crowdsourced survey data. And that's what we've done with this particular um, survey. So there's lots of existing well-designed trials reporting out on inequities like poor access to services, um, poor quality of care once you get access to a service, um, and then poor outcomes. In other words, what happens to the person who receives the treatment or care um, specific to people of color. So we're talking about um, Indigenous, Black, other peoples of color. Um, and when you consider why it's important in arthritis that we do this work, Ellen, there are 6 million people on the land called Canada today who live with a type of arthritis. So if, if we know there are health inequities in general, then that means they're very much amplified in the population of people uh, who have arthritis um, and, and are facing far too many challenges in the care that they're trying to get. So our work on closing or at least addressing health inequities in arthritis um, really began while lots of researchers have been doing work for many years, our own work really began in earnest in uh, July um, June, July of 2020. And that was, of course, after the, I think the whole world was shocked at the murder of George Floyd. And then of course, we took a sharper focus in the fall of 2020 
after the tragic death of Joyce Echequan, um, who I think as most know who are watching today um, was an indigenous woman who sought emergency care at a hospital in uh, St. Charles uh, Borromee and died while seeking that care. And that there was a coroner's report that said a direct contributor to her death was racism and prejudice. Those are, you know, if those kinds of things, Ellen, don't really shake you to your core, um, I don't know what will, frankly. So um, we started back at that time, now two years ago, to really take that inward look that is, is where every organization um, starts uh, at the individual team member level of people like you and me sitting there reading in the evenings, watching uh, news reports, watching documentaries that have been made by the very people who are facing these injustices in the healthcare system. Um, you know, that process of learning and unlearning. We talked about it just last week, actually, with Kelly. Um, and, and I don't want to, you know, people probably are thinking, well, we've heard about that from you before, Cheryl. And people are going to continue to hear that from, from us, Ellen, because it's a lifelong process. Learning and unlearning, you know, smoothing those deep, those deep channels of prejudice, of, um, of assumption, take years to smooth out. So it's not just that you and I are talking about it and doing our hard work at an individual level and an organizational level today. We have to do it every day. We have to be awake every day to the things that are going around us. Um, and then of course, you know that our work really took shape and speed uh, when, um, we were so blessed uh, by a partnership with Dr. Terry Lynn Fox, who's an indigenous scholar uh, on Indian residential schools and the path forward towards truth and reconciliation. So she really has brought to us a, a much richer level of understanding of knowing, um, teaching us how to sit with the ick um, and, and that even small steps forward are important ones for her community. Um, and then, of course, uh, taking our work um, public. So it's not just you do the work inside. You have to start the uncomfortable process of, of taking it outward um, and helping other people, we hope, see uh, the inequities that people will face by reporting on them, right? Um, by, by sharing Indigenous-led research with our community, not just our own. Um, and, and really focusing on being good allies by amplifying the voices of the BIPOC community, not replacing them, not being the voice for BIPOC communities, but being a voice that supports their voices, I think is, is kind of where we started um, and, and why health inequities really matter. We've written on this topic uh, in the fall of, in the summer, as I mentioned, in the fall of 2020, and talk specifically about the big inequities in arthritis care for Indigenous peoples specifically, but those also carry over across um, the entire BIPOC uh, community. So, so less inspiration and more requirement, uh, you know, it's our responsibility to, to do this work um, and to continue to do it. This work is not 
never going away at ACE in my, I don't believe in my lifetime, because if the Truth and Reconciliation Report was published, um, you know, back in what, 2015, 2016, and it's now 2022, and very few have been completed in the calls to action, I'm going to suggest to you that there is still a, a, a lot of work to be done. Um, and, and just to say to our audience members, Ellen, we're committed. We're fully, fully committed to our allyship of all the communities that suffer uh, from health inequities. So that sort of sets the stage. Can I ask you a question? Yeah, absolutely, Cheryl. And that, that was such a beautiful, genuine, heartfelt, I think, not just like summary, but I feel like it's a call to action, right? To yeah, def it, def it definitely is. And you know, one of the things you have to do as an individual is you have to call yourself to action every day you get up. And you do that in, in all aspects of your life. I do that with my own self-care for my rheumatoid arthritis, right? I call myself in action every day. I kind of go, oh, what's hurting today? What do I need to do? What do I need to scale back on? What can I do a bit more of? We're used to people in the arthritis community, Alan, are used to doing this work themselves for their disease. If not because um, we know that's what leads to the best outcomes, but almost what is required of us because there are these gaps in the healthcare system um, that so many face. So I guess I wanted to ask you, what kinds of questions were asked in this survey? Maybe you can share with our audience members what we're trying to dig for in the way of information. Yeah, absolutely, Cheryl. And I think you touched on this already, um, but we were lucky enough to partner with Research Co., which is a public polling firm who has, you know, really extensive networks to be able to reach those who are seldom um, reached out to. Yeah. Right? Those who I don't want to say they're hard to reach because no, they they're not that hard to reach. It's that we're not good at reaching them. <laughs> we're not yeah. Good at reaching them. Yeah. It's not that they don't have a voice. It's that we're not listening. Right. It's yeah. That's what um, I've, I've begun to realize because, you know, we've asked them these questions and they responded loud and clear, Cheryl, and you, you had said this, um, but some of the specific questions you touched on was, for example, social demographic information and, you know, the importance of collecting it because it allows us to understand kind of the intersection, right? Not just an individual who identifies as a person of color, but also who may live in a rural neighborhood who has difficulty accessing care, who has many barriers because they're a primary caretaker for someone else, right? It's not just person of color. It's not yeah. that simple. And then we also act, ask questions about access to care and then the experience itself, characteristics about healthcare providers, how people seek information, so incredibly comprehensive. And then we also ask questions about quality. So what does quality look like in, in a care system? Yeah. Yeah. I think all of those are so important. And, you know, you read in the research, uh, Alan, all the time about, oh, you know, um, people of color reporting poorer outcomes. Well, why? Well, maybe it's because of that interaction. It's because what happened that preceded the outcome was not tailored to their needs, was not tailored to their beliefs, was not tailored to their geographic 
uh, or cultural context. It wasn't even appropriate, perhaps, for them, uh, the recommendation that was provided. That's why there's a poor health outcome. Um, so it takes, it's really important that we understand when research reports poor health outcomes, it's not because the research person, this person in the research who is of color, said, oh, I don't want to do well, for heaven's sakes. It's because they weren't able to do well with what was provided to them or what was asked of them or what was directed to them. So I think that's so important. We take the blame off the person who's sick, right? Who actually needs the best care and we put it where it should be. And I don't want to use the word blame, but that is what happens to patients. We get blamed for not doing well. And that is not uh, the case, uh, certainly in this topic. Can you share a few of the findings? We, we are going to publish the full report later this month, but can you give us uh, a few tidbits um, from, from the survey findings, Ellen? Yeah. Absolutely. And what was most surprising to you, I guess, as part of that question? You know, Cheryl, that's, that's great. It, I, I'm excited to share this and, you know, I want to hear what our community has to say and thinks about this because really it's, it's all um, quite striking uh, is how I'd like to describe it. But we know, for example, from the data itself that BIPOC respondents reported greater barriers to accessing care, including time, travel, unpleasant experiences that they had previously, language and competing priorities. So these were the top ones. And I'm reporting because they are statistically significant, which means the difference between BIPOC and white respondents, which that was a comparison that we had made, is not by chance. Statistically, right. it's not by chance. Not just we we had a sample and someone picked this and someone randomly picked that. No, it, there there is a difference, and that was you know there is a formula in mathematical calculation to determine that. Yeah, and um, we also this is probably you know one that really did strike me, even though it's not surprising, so to say, having it written out in numbers. So for example, BIPOC respondents were six times, six, six times as likely to report having experienced ethnicity-based discrimination often. Wow. And you know what? The even more, you know, it's almost unbelievable part of this was that these results were even more pronounced for indigenous peoples who face discrimination based on ethnicity at 25%, one in every four people. Like, yeah. it's so striking. And then gender and sexual orientation as well. So it's not just indigenous people for their ethnicity, it's indigenous people for their ethnicity and gender, the ethnicity right. gender and sexual orientation, right? So that intersection. Yeah, just uh, astounding and not in a good way, obviously. Um, I, I mean, I, all kinds of images pop into my head when I hear six times greater, right? It's that, I mean, that's a, that's a anthill compared to, a, you know, a mountain. Um, uh, well, I certainly hope that um, the report sheds a lot more light. I know that it will, because I've seen uh, some of the data and I just, also want to take the opportunity to thank 
everyone that responded to the survey, who gave of their time and their heart, um, and who opened up uncomfortable places in themselves to respond to those open-ended questions, to the boxes where we allowed people to, or not allowed, but invited people um, to write more so that we could see the, the grains in the sand, not just the sand, right? Not just the big problem of health inequities, but to hear at the individual level what people were facing in their own words. So huge thanks to all the respondents. There were close to 1300 respondents, which I believe Ellen makes this one of the largest crowdsourced data projects um, in arthritis specific to this topic. So super, uh, super grateful to everyone who took the time um, to respond. Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, everyone on the team shares that gratitude and, you know, yeah. we hope to thank you the most by being able to actually action on it. So, yeah. you know, just, just keep your eyes and ears out. And with that, you know, I do want to thank you, Cheryl, for your time, um, for your leadership. And, you know, I do encourage everyone to read the report once it's out and join us for more arthritis at home every week. Thank you so much. Take care. Thanks,